Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. 15th verse of the third chapter of the book of Galatians, we are talking about the blood covenant. And this will set you ablaze. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth it or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed, singular, were the promises made. He saith not, and the seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is who? The covenant was made between God the Father and Abraham and Jesus Christ. It was not possible that an earthly man can fulfill an eternal covenant seeing that he was going to die. So you see, Jesus was really the one that would make the covenant with the Father because his life is eternal. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go on. Now to Abraham and his seed, you see, singular were the promises made. Verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, who was Christ. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And we're going to talk about the law that was added as we go on in our study. But first of all, we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant that was made, a blood contract that was made between the father and Abraham. We put emphasis on the fact that it's a blood covenant that cannot be dissolved. If it was broken, then the life of the covenant head that broke it would be destroyed. Meaning that the father God backed up his covenant blood covenant with his very life. And should he not fulfill a word of that covenant, he'd have to be destroyed off the face of the earth. All right? The reason why the Father wanted to make a blood covenant, we said, was because he needed access into the earth. Very quickly, John 10. John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10. The Father needed an avenue into the earth. Let's make a quick contrast between how Satan's program came into the earth and how God's program came into the earth. Verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Satan's program came into the earth by the way of deception. When Satan came to Eve, he did not introduce himself and say, Eve, I am Lucifer. I am Satan, the fallen one. I was the one that deceived the nations. I took it upon myself to dethrone the Almighty God. And I've come now to introduce myself to you. I want you to go into blood covenant with me, make an agreement with me, so that you and I work together and collaborate together so we can destroy God. He didn't say that. Did he? He introduced himself. He didn't have anything to offer her anyhow, because he had nothing. He's a defeated one. It's time we saw him as the defeated one. Amen? He is the annihilated one. He had nothing to offer. Didn't introduce himself. But now we've got God the Father in Genesis 17, 1. You don't have to turn to it. And he comes to a man named Abraham. And he wants to bring his program into the earth. Well, Satan's program came by deception. He deceived her. And of course, you know the story. Well, now here we find that God the Father... He don't like what's going on, so he has a program that he wants to come to the earth. And he appears to a man named Abram, and he speaks to Abram. And first of all, he introduces himself and says, Abram, I am the Almighty God. I am El Shaddai. I am, which means the supreme breasting one, the God that's more than enough. I will be to you a mother and a father. That's what he's saying. The supreme breasty one. 
I will be to you a mother and a father to you. I will be all that you need. I will be your protector. I'll be your lover. I'll care for you. And you, I'm offering a covenant, an agreement, so that you and I can work together, labor together in this earth through my program to destroy the works of the wicked one. And Abraham proceeded to accept that which God offered. You see how, what, what a gentleman he is? He doesn't force his way into your life. He didn't force his way into the earth. But through the legal channel of birth, he brought Jesus Christ into the earth to, you know, work out his program and carry it on. Okay, now, Abram agrees. And in his agreement, they cut the blood covenant. And when that took place, God now had access to man and the earth. And man now had access to God. In covenant union, in covenant relationship. Now, mind you, he is a sovereign God. And in his sovereignty, he bound himself to his word, to his covenant. He said, I will not break my covenant nor alter a word that I have spoken. If he did not want to fulfill the word in your life, in my life, in Abraham's life, then he should not have said it in his covenant agreement. But he did and backed up the word by his life. If he doesn't fulfill his word, he must annihilate himself off the earth. That's not possible because God cannot and will not die. But he'd have to do that. So now we see... a. Covenant nation has come into being, the nation of Israel. Now, the third chapter of the book of Galatians, go back there. Our study will be from there. Keep a bookmarker there. We'll be going back and forth to the third chapter of the book of Galatians. We find here in verse 6, Paul reiterating what took place and what Moses said back there in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, about Abraham and put emphasis. Emphasis on the faith of Abraham. Now, the Jews were always using the fact that Abraham was a Jew to prove out their points. The Judaizers were coming to this Galatian church and saying to them, Now that you're born again, you've got to live by the law. You have to obey the law and the commandments. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. You can't do this and you've got to do, you know, so on and so forth. And they said, See, Abraham, our father, was a Jew. By circumcision, and he had to carry out all these things also. But they neglected the fact that Abraham was not a Jew when they cut the covenant with Jehovah. Abraham was a Gentile, or a heathen, whatever you want to call him. That's what he was. There was no such thing as a Jew at that time. And so Paul here brings out the faith of Abraham and says that Abraham, by faith, went into relationship and agreement with God. By faith, accepted the offer of God. And by faith cut the covenant, and with the cutting of the covenant through circumcision, that is when the nation came into being, into existence. Not before. Not when he was a Jew, but when he was a Gentile and believed God. Verse 6, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Those that are of faith. Abraham had faith and believed God, and Paul emphasizes that it was his faith that brought this nation into existence. It was not the law but the faith of Abraham and the covenant. Now, he proved himself faithful to God. We talked about that. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it talked about, and turn there very quickly. We'll reiterate that point, and then we'll go on from there. We talked about how binding and how strong this covenant relationship is. We find out here exactly how far a man can go to believe that God would carry out his word because of a covenant union with a man. Abraham had to prove himself worthy of the covenant. He had to prove himself faithful to God that he would not turn his back on God come what may. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, begin reading here at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, notice it's by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God spoke by his mouth and said with his own words that through Isaac shall the nations of the world be blessed. Through thy offspring, through thy seed, through Isaac. And when he spoke that to him, Abraham knew that Isaac then was to bear children and have seed after him. Okay. Now, after that was spoken by God, the father said to him, Now go ahead and offer up Isaac, thy only begotten son, Upon the altar of sacrifice, offer them up to me as a burnt offering. Cut them down the middle, just like they do the animals, and just split them wide open. Let his blood run out and light a fire underneath him and kill him. 
Let them turn into ashes and offer them up as a burnt offering unto me, because you are my covenant head, and that's what I want you to do. Abraham proceeded to do exactly what God said to him over here, and look at the next verse, accounting that God was able to raise him up. Abraham believed in his heart that God had to raise him up from the dead if he killed him, because he spoke by his mouth and said and swore by his own word that through Isaac shall the nations of the world be blessed. And so in the next part of that it says, even from the dead. Abraham never saw anybody raised up from the dead probably. But here's the first time he begins to think that God spoke by his mouth and made a covenant with me. He backed it up by his blood, by his very own life. And if he doesn't carry out raising him up from the dead, then this God whom I'm in agreement with, covenant with, must be annihilated because he's lied. And he says, I'm going to go up there and do exactly what you said to do, and I'm going to receive him. Look at the next part of that. From whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham already received Isaac raised up from the dead in a figure on the strength of the covenant. He conceived it in his spirit. He saw that through this blood union covenant agreement, God cannot lie. He's got to raise him from the dead if he asked me to kill him because this man's got to have children. That's a pretty strong covenant that that man can stand there and say, Ah, oh, bless God, the boy and I will go up and worship. I'll light a fire underneath him and we'll be back again from the mountain. He told his people that accompanied him, said, wait here at the foot of the mountain. We're going to go up the mountain. We're going to worship in a place on Mount Moriah where God has told us to go up and worship. And we are going to come back. And he met him in the land. You know the story when they got up there. He just went ahead and proceeded to do what God said to do. He wasn't fearful about it. He didn't think anything about it. He didn't think twice about it because he knew that this God whom he served had to raise him from the dead. And as far as he's concerned, he's already received him raised from the dead. How'd you like to meditate on that for a while? And so he goes up there and proceeds to, you know, offer him up as a sacrifice. And you know the story. She just sang it. Through the ram, he saved the son of Abraham. And it was a type and a shadow of what God was going to do. Abraham went all the way to offer up his only begotten son for his covenant partner. And his covenant partner, Jehovah, said, because you have done this thing, I'm going to go to the extreme of offering up my only begotten son. Now listen, if Abraham could believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead, you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God had the ability to raise his son, Jesus, from the dead. And that's what it was a type of. Abraham saw the gospel, he heard it preached, Jesus preached it to him, he saw it probably in the spirit, and he knew, oh, bless God, he knew it. He was just getting, just, just, you know, just a lot of fun, having a party, just getting all excited about it. He knew that what he was doing was going to cause God to go to the same extreme and offer up his son for the human race. He may have seen the whole thing. I don't know how much he saw, but I'd like to get in there and see what he saw. <laughs> Hallelujah. He saw, he saw Jesus raise him to dead. I believe that. And he went up there on that mountain. I mean, he just had a party. And he just, uh, offering up his son. And just ready to just to wipe him out and just kill him off him as a burnt sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, No, stay thy hand. Because thou hast done this thing. I know, I know, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you fear God and you will keep the word. You will keep the covenant. So now God knew and Abraham knew that the covenant would not ever be broken. Now, let's go back to the book of Genesis, the 15th chapter again. They both have proved themselves to the covenant. And we pick it up here. A word of wisdom that was given by the Father Himself to Abraham while he was in sleep or in a vision. A trance, whatever you want to call it. And He spoke to him and said to him, 15th chapter, verse 13. And He said unto Abram, Know of a surety, know of a surety, know for sure that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So a word of wisdom or a prophecy, whichever way you want to say it, it's a word of wisdom, coming by the Father God, speaks to Abraham and says to him that, his seed or the nation of Israel that was born was going to be in bondage to a certain nation, which we find out to be the Egyptian nation. Now, at this time, we find Isaac's children have grown up. 
He has grandchildren. His grandchildren have grown up. And they're carried into Egypt by the way of Joseph. You know the story. Joseph, one of the patriarchs right on through Jacob, goes on down to Egypt. He was sold into slavery. You know the story. And he finds his way into Egypt and God raises him up and exalts him and he becomes the ruler over all the Egyptian land. And because of the reason of the famine, his family came on down to Egypt to find food. And his father, Jacob, you know, was getting up in age. And the family came down to him and got some food and went back and he told them, well, he told them to get food. They got to bring Benjamin and so on and so forth. And they all finally came on down and met him down there. And they had a good old reunion and they praised God together and they worshiped God. And Joseph was a, a big shot over there in Egypt and, and Israel came on down into Egypt. And finally they ended up in bondage to Egypt. I don't care how good the world looks. I don't care how it seems. I don't care what, it, you know, what benefit you think you're getting out of this whole world. Soon enough, if you start going by the world system and by the world's provision and by the world's way, you're going to end up in bondage. Just like the Israelites did. And they were in bondage to that nation. But if they just would have just kept the covenant, if they would have obeyed God, if they would have done what God said to do to Abraham and their fathers instead of forsaking it and, and turning their back and being a covenant breaker, if they would have just followed what God said to him, they would have been blessed beyond measure. But here they find themselves into bondage. Let's go to the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And begin reading here at verse 8. And in the twelfth chapter in verse 40, you don't have to look at this, I'll read it. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. The book of Galatians said that the law was added 430 years after the covenant was made. So God prophesied and said they'd spend 400 years over there in, in the land of Egypt in bondage. And uh, we see the prophecy has come true. The word of wisdom came true. There they are in, in this bondage in Egypt. And in verse 8 it says, Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Okay, he didn't know Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Israel had grown over the years to become a great mighty people there in the land of Egypt. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when they falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter and hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field, and all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor." I mean to tell you, they tried everything they could. They tried to destroy the children. They tried everything they could imagine to think to do. They wanted to destroy this nation of Israel and to get into where they didn't grow in power because they thought they were going to lose their nation. Well, look at the second chapter of the same book and verse 23. Second chapter. Here they are serving a land that was not there. Serving a people, a nation who had their own gods who served in false gods. They didn't serve the Lord God, the Almighty God, the Supreme Breasty One, the El Shaddai, the God that's more than enough, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't serve that God. They served other gods. So over here, in the second chapter, verse 23, it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed. They groaned. They mourned. They cried. Why? Because of reason of the bondage. They cried, and their cry came unto, the, unto God by reason of the bondage. Notice their cry came unto God. Boy, why is it that they've got to get down to where, you know, they have nothing and they're in such affliction and, and mourning and just, just terrible before they cry out to God? Why is it? Well, I don't know, but we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't allow that to happen in our lives. Don't get to a place of despair. Just cry unto God every day. Hallelujah. Get up in the morning and say, I channel my mind for a new direction. I'm going to worship God. Do what BJ does. Hands are going to worship the Lord. Feet, you're going to worship the Lord. Body, you're going to worship the Lord today. And that's all there is to it. You've got no choice in the matter. Amen? Do it. But look what happened over here to these Egyptians. They're crying out. They're mourning. I mean, to the Israelites in Egypt. They're crying and they're mourning and they're just getting on, you know, just, just on their knees before God and on their face before God. And God heard in verse 24. Say it with me. God heard. God heard. See, He heard their groanings. And God remembered. Say that. God remembered. Now say, God heard. And God remembered. Well, what did He remember? I said, what did He remember? 
His covenant with who? With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God heard and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because of the covenant, God looked upon the children of Israel. Who did He look upon? Hallelujah. He heard, He remembered, and He looked upon the children of Israel, and God had what? God heard, God remembered, God looked and had respect. Because of Abraham, He respected the children of Israel. Because of Abraham, He had respect under the children of Israel. And how far did He respect them? You, you have to just fly through this, but in the third chapter of the book of Exodus, it tells us he had so much respect for the children of Israel that he called upon a man named Moses. And he said, Moses, I'm calling upon you. And he called out of a, out of a burning bush, flame of fire, fire of the Holy Ghost. The, bur- the bush did not burn, but bless God, the Spirit of God was there. The glory of God was there and spoke unto him and says, you get thee on down to Egypt and get my people, get my people, the people who, in whom I am in covenant with, get them out of that bondage. I can't take it any longer. I don't want to have them bound up any longer. Well... You know the story about Moses. He didn't want to go, but praise God, God finally talked him into going. Have you ever been like that? God finally talked you into doing it after a while? Well, don't be like that. You just instantly obey the voice of the Lord. Amen. You just instantly obey what God has for you to do. But here, this man named Moses, God respected uh, Israel. He respected their cry because of their covenant. And all of a sudden, we see the, the, the rarest, most unique experience in history about to take place. I mean to tell you, he sends this man on down there into Egypt. He sends him to the Pharaoh. He sends him before him and says, I've come in the name of my God and he wants my people delivered out of this bondage. He wants them set free from this nation. And the Pharaoh didn't want to listen to what he had to say. And all of a sudden, we see miracles that staggered this nation to its very foundation. I mean, it was just so staggering. There was not another type of deliverance. There was never a miracle seen like this or paradigm like this throughout all the world that a God would do what he did for this Nation of Israel sending all the, you know, all the power and the glory to come down upon that nation and shake it and defy every one of their gods to the face. And finally they gave up when they, their firstborn died and, and they saw that their gods departed from them and the God of all the universe was working on the side of the Israelites and we see them delivered from the, from, the, from the bondage. And the Israelites, when they got delivered from that type of bondage, and this is one of the most staggering parts of that miracle... Can you imagine getting delivered from a nation without a battle? Can you imagine being a bondage to a nation who, has, who is stronger than you are and mightier in weapons than you are, who you are in slavery and bondage to, and all of a sudden you are delivered without one person having a sh- to shed his blood, not one person dying, not one person getting hurt? And to top all that off, every single one of the Israelites that were delivered, it doesn't matter if they were deaf, it doesn't matter if they were blind, it doesn't matter if they, they, you know, they were maimed, it doesn't matter what their condition was, how old they were, the Bible says that when they got delivered, there was not one feeble among their tribe. The power and the glory of God renewed their strength and made them whole again. And as long as Israel kept the covenant, there was not one sick person among their tribe. There was not one barren woman. Every wife had a child. There was not one miscarriage among their tribes, and uh, any of them. And there was not one young that died prematurely. There was not one woman nor one man that died prematurely as long as they kept the covenant. That's something to shout about. There was not one sick, there was not one woman barren, there was not one miscarriage, there was not one that, among their tribe that died that was young, premature death, as so long as they kept the covenant. That's Exodus the 23rd chapter, verses 20. You can read right on down, from 20 right on down through 26. But that's exactly what he promised them, that's exactly what he was going to do for them, that's exactly what he did for them, as long as they kept the covenant. Now, after their deliverance, they find themselves in a desert, similar to our Mojave Desert, and they're out there without any sustenance. And there's no food. There's no water. There's nothing for them to eat or drink. And they, they, they you know, have no, no way of getting nourishment. And so this Al Shaddai, this God that's more than enough, provides for them, keeps this nation together and preserves them on the strength of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and supernaturally sends down food, manna from heaven, and gives them water to drink and proves to them, I will be your father and your mother I will provide your every need so long as you'll keep my covenant. That's a powerful covenant, isn't it? That is a powerful union, isn't it? You think about the strength of that covenant that would cause this God of the universe to be that intimate with any nation. He didn't do that for the other nations, but this was a covenant nation. Now, let's go to the 32nd chapter of the same book. Begin at verse 9. 
Now this is very, very important. This Israeli nation continuously sinned against the covenant. They continuously broke the covenant they had with God. Ninth verse of the 32nd chapter. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. Ninth chapter, Exodus. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this. A circle or underline that word this. I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. He said stiff-necked because they broke the covenant. Paul said in the book of Romans that they were covenant breakers. They constantly broke the covenant. And because of it, the Father God wanted to use that covenant right to wipe them off the face of the earth because they broke a blood covenant agreement. We'll tell you why he couldn't do it though as we go on. And he says, they are a stiff-necked people. This people. Verse 10. Now therefore... Let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? Circle the word thy. God in his wrath said this people. This people. But Moses is bringing his attention to the fact, it's not a this people, it's your people. There's a difference. God wanted to destroy this people. He considered them covenant breakers not to be his people. Hey, we're the people of God. We're in covenant with God. God's people keep the covenant. Can you say amen? We are to keep the covenant that we have with our God. And they weren't doing it. And so he got so mad, he said, this people. And Moses again refers to him, refers him to the covenant and says that they are your people. And he says to him, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent. On the strength of the covenant, Moses has the audacity to speak to the God of the universe and say to him, Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy, again he says, your people. That's boldness. You talk about walking in, he's talking, he's in the presence of God right here. He's talking to the almighty omnipotent one and he talks to him like I'm talking to you right now with authority and with power. And says, on the strength of the covenant, turn from your wrath and repent from this evil you thought to do against your people. And he goes on to say, look at this. I like this part because this is the faith part. He holds up the word of God like a mirror right in the Father's face. This is what he does. Look at it. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self. See? I swear by myself, saith the Lord. That's what he said. Thou swearest by thine own, and saidest. In other words, you said it. You see, we talk about sovereignty again right here. Someone says, God couldn't, he can do anything he wants to do. You faith people say he's got to keep his word. Well, if God wants to do, he can do anything he wants to do. Above and beyond his word. If you meet the conditions, he still may not want to heal you or deliver you. That's hogwash. Forget that kind of talk. Look at this carefully. Look at it again now. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, remember the covenant to whom you swore by your life, with your blood, by your own self, you have sworn and said, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have, that I have spoken of, spoken of, Will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Again, Psalm 89, 34 says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the word that's gone out of my mouth. If God spoke it, and putting him in remembrance of the covenant, he reminded him of Abraham. Now listen, Abraham was already dead. 
As far as the nation was concerned, they broke the covenant. As far as God was concerned, he wanted to wipe them out. In his sovereignty, he wanted to destroy them. In his sovereignty, he wanted to raise up a new nation in Moses. And in his sovereignty, you say, if he wanted to, he could have. You're wrong. Because he wanted to. Did you hear me? He wanted to, but he couldn't. Why? Because his covenant head partner was already dead. He stuck. Once Abraham died, the testator of the covenant died, that's it. He's got to fulfill it. To what extreme? Until they sin against it? No, until he offers his son. Because that covenant head partner went to the extreme of offering, offering up his only begotten son. It meant that after this man Abraham, who was obedient to the covenant, died, that God the Father had to keep it unto offering his only begotten son. And no matter what Israel did along these lines, you see, he had to be faithful to Abraham. But he didn't like them sinning against the covenant. And we'll find out what took place because of it. But on the strength of the covenant, God bound himself by his word in his sovereignty to obey that covenant and cannot break it and will not alter that word. That's how forceful this covenant is. That's why Abraham knew he can go up there and offer up Isaac because God had to raise him up. Had to. Had to. Someone says in his sovereignty, could he not? No, he had to. He had to or annihilate himself. You think about that. He had to or annihilate himself. That's powerful words. Okay? Let's look at the next verse. Verse 14. You'll love it. Make you speak in tongues, won't it? And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Hallelujah to Jesus. We have a covenant agreement with our Heavenly Father that is so binding, that is so powerful, that God will keep that covenant unto the end if it means yielding His sovereignty to His Word. Did you hear that? So this business about you faith people think you got God in a box. Uh-uh. God's never been in a box. But He Himself instigated a covenant and bound Himself to His Word. All I'm doing is reading the contract. Moses knew the contract. Moses knew the agreement. Moses knew his life was behind it. Moses knew that he swore. And by the strength of the covenant, he held up that word to God like a mirror and said, You said it, Lord. You have to do it. And the Father God repented and says, I won't do it. I'll change. I won't do it. I won't wipe them off because of Abraham who's already gone. Now, are you ready for this nugget of truth? You know who our covenant head is? Jesus. How many of you know that Jesus has already died? He's already died. That means that the covenant cannot be broken. The testator, who was Jesus, has already died and left his will. Now, Moses was the intercessor. But now in our covenant, Jesus ever liveth to make intercession at the right hand of the Father. The reminder to the Father, Moses was in this case, but that Jesus stands there at the right hand of the Father. You know that he was wounded. You know that he was bruised. And as our intercessor reminds the Father, when you pray, when you cry unto the Lord, he says, you've got to hear him. You've got to remember, because I'm right here. I died for him. You've got to look upon him and respect them. That's you. That's me. Because... I died, and we're in covenant together. Moses is not my mediator. Jesus is. He ever liveth. How could God forget that when Jesus is at his right hand? How could God not acknowledge the fact that Jesus is there interceding for you and me? And if he respected a covenant with that man, Abraham, how much more does he respect his son that gave his life and has already died and made an eternal covenant when we cry out in the name of Jesus to our Father. Oh, it's more powerful, beloved. It's more powerful than anything we could imagine if we understand our covenant rights and privileges. So the Father God repented of what He was going to do because of the covenant. Now to go back to Galatians, the third chapter, and we will now expound. On these scriptures that Paul, by the Spirit of God, wrote concerning the covenant, Still the Abrahamic covenant. 
and we'll learn some things about the law and why it was added and what its purpose was. Go back to verse 16 now, third chapter. Now, Abraham, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Notice it's singular. It's not plural. Not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. See, the covenant involved Christ. And the seed was Christ. And that's why when Abraham offered up Isaac, it was it typified that the father had to offer up Jesus. And so, until Jesus actually came... See, the covenant could not be fulfilled as an eternal covenant because Abraham didn't have everlasting life. He was, uh, uh, he was you know, in, under the earth, Abraham's bosom. He didn't have eternal life. It doesn't stand to reason that God could have an eternal covenant with a man who couldn't be eternal. So you see, it was with Jesus. And we'll find out here. Look, let's read on. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot annul that it should make the promise of none effect. The law that was added to the covenant does not take away from the covenant. See, the covenant was a promise. The inheritance was of promise, not of a written law. It was added to the covenant. And we're going to show you the reasons why. Next verse. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come. That's Jesus to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, that was Moses. Now the law came, and it came because of transgression. Now we understand that because Israel as a nation, they were not following the footsteps of Abraham, and because they sinned against the covenant, they were in danger of really God just wiping them off. He wanted to do it. Believe me. And if it weren't for Abraham, they he'd have done it. You mark those words that when you're in blood covenant and that nation sins against that covenant and breaks it, man, he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But the man who he was in covenant with died and he couldn't defend himself any longer. He was already bound to Abraham to fulfill the covenant. So what the father did to help out the nation of Israel was added the law with the Levitical priesthood to cover the sins of Israel, you see, to avoid wiping them off the earth because of their sin and breaking the covenant. And secondly, in verse 24, it tells us exactly why. Wherefore the law was, that, was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now the law then would serve with the Levitical priesthood, number one, to avoid their annihilation because of their you know, sacrifice for their sins. Okay, and number two, to serve as a schoolmaster or as a teacher to instruct Israel about Christ. Now, we've got to realize this. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Abraham, in that vision that when God appeared to him, when he cut the covenant, he had the gospel preached to him. He saw the whole thing. He saw the day of Jesus and was glad. He knew what was going on. But Israel as a nation, as a whole, they didn't have that kind of insight. They didn't have that privilege of having the gospel preached unto them. At least not in this dimension. And so God was going to use what is called a schoolmaster, a, a tutor, a governor, or a teacher. In the Greek, it's called a pedagogue. The Hebrew, rather. The Hebrew people, they had pedagogues, which are family slaves or tutors, to teach and instruct the children. So the law then would serve as a teacher or as an instructor to instruct these people of the nation of Israel unto Christ until He should come. So it would have a twofold purpose. It would cover up their sin until he came, and then it would lead, lead them to Christ and teach them about Christ and what God was going to do when Christ came. So now here they are. They have the law and the Levitical priesthood added to the covenant, but what Israel made the mistake of doing, they thought that they were justified by the law. They thought the law took the place of the covenant, but it didn't. They thought the inheritance came by the works of the law, and it didn't. They even misplaced the law. I mean, you know, how far off can you get? They misplaced the law, misunderstood the law, and as far as they were concerned, the law didn't do what it was supposed to do because they didn't recognize Jesus when, it, when He came. And they were supposed to. They were taught. Let's look at the fourth chapter very quickly, and let's notice some words. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth, verse 1, nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Now, in the Hebrew 
and Jewish nation. We know and understand that adoption, and even in Eastern countries, different Eastern countries, adoption in that Eastern world, in that Jewish religion, was not as we know adoption to be in our own lives. You adopt a child that's not yours. But it was not like that there. They adopted their own children. In that verse 1, that the heir, talking about a legitimate child, let's say of a king, or just of any family, maybe a wealthy family, okay? As long as he is a child, that is a, a young baby, a young child, anywhere from 1 to 12 years old, somewhere like that. As long as he's that young, he differeth nothing from a servant. All right, now listen to what he's saying. Your own children, as long as they're under the age of accountability, so to speak, between 1 and 12, they're no different than a servant as far as they're concerned in their culture. But he still is considered to be Lord of all, though he be Lord of all. In other words, even though he is their offspring, he has no family privileges, he has no family rights to the inheritance of the family. He has no say-so in business matters. Next verse. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So, we see that the father has the responsibility of seeing to it that when that child reaches the age of accountability, when he thinks that that child has reached manhood, this tutor, this pedagogue, this governor would instruct this child, teach him the law, teach him the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, teach him all about, you know, the covenant, teach him about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would have to learn the first five books of the Bible, some of them the book of Psalms, verbatim, quote them. The first 12 years of their life, they were taught by these governors, by these tutors, the law and the commandments. Okay. They were instructed, so to speak. But when the father, at the appointed time of the father, they had what is we call and they call their bar mitzvah. When the child enters into family heirship, they are adopted now, considered to be only a servant up to this time, as a son in the father's family. That gives them a legal right to the checkbook, a legal right to everything that they own, to the, to the palace or whatever they have and whatever possessions are theirs. It gives him a legal right to be an equal heir with the father. And he's now in partnership with the father. And anything the father does, he's got to consult the son. They're equal. Okay. Now, that's a custom. And that's how they adopted their children into the family. Now, let's read on. Next verse. Even so, we. He's really talking about the Jews right now. He's talking to a church that has a lot of Jews in it. And the Judaizers were coming in to tell these Galatian people, now that you're saved, you've got to live under the law, by the law. And he's trying to tell them, don't be foolish. You weren't saved under the law. And he's showing the purpose of the law. And so he says, even so we, when we were children, you see, children, okay, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Now he's using the law double reference here. When they were children, they were under the law, they understood that kind of language. Then they had their bar mitzvah, they had a big how-do-you-do party and everything, and they, you know, just came into manhood. They were clothed with the toga virilis, which is the robe of righteousness. They put a ring on their finger. I mean, they had a big, big party, big splash. I mean, they just went, you know, just went all out. And they were just all excited about it, and, and the father saw fit that it's time that they become my equal heir. And boy, I'll tell you, you know, the father was happy, and so was the son. All this inheritance, I mean, wouldn't you be happy? Now, let's put it in the spiritual talk. Paul is saying over here, he says, that's the same thing like when we were in the world. You see, he's saying that these, these, this nation of Israel, they were servants unto God. They were taught by the law what God was going to do at the appointed time. Now, here comes the appointed time that the Father sees fit to send His Son in the likeness of men. He sends Jesus to the earth in the likeness of men. Just as Abraham offered up Isaac, he offers up Jesus. And at the appointed time when the people should have known that Jesus was coming, when they should have been taught by the law who he would be, where he would come out of the loins of David, what he was going to do, and what he was going to accomplish, destroy the works of the devil, everything that, that he was going to do. When the time was come that they should have been men, manhood, grown up in the manhood, understood by the law, the precepts of God, the program of God, knowing the Savior of the Messiah was about to come, he sent the Son and although Israel wasn't ready, God was. You see, God was. He wasn't going to stop His program for them. The law served its purpose. He sent His Son. His Son came. And when He came, He did what He had to do to redeem mankind. And now, anybody can be adopted into the family of God. You can be birthed into that family. You can be born into that family and also adopted into the family. Look at, let's read the rest. 
Verse 4 again. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Here we see the word huios. These sons are full mature sons, heirs of the Father, joint heirs with the Son. So when the time was come, God the Father did send Jesus like He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus then fulfilled the written law. He tore down the wall of partition between God and man. He took the law, the ordinances, and nailed it to the cross, put it out of the way, fulfilled the law, and now the law served its purpose. Just as the Jewish child is no longer under the pedagogue, under the governor, under the teacher, instructor, neither is anybody now under the law. The law is put away. <coughs> Excuse me. It served its purpose, and now we become heirs of God. The toga virilis is the Holy Spirit placing on you the robe of righteousness, putting a ring on your finger, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, and you become adopted into the family of God. You become a weos, an heir, a son, and you inherit all that the Father has. Look at the next verse. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Wherefore thou art no more a servant. Now listen. Remember Jesus said to his disciples before he left? I no longer call you servants. You ever think about that? See, Israel was the servant. They were the servants of God. They, as a servant, just like a child who was not yet 13 or 14, whatever the age was, and adopted to the family, was considered to be only like as a servant. But at the point of time, then he would take on heirship. Well, Jesus said now, he's just about to depart to be with the, his father, go to Calvary. And he says, now I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. You know what that word friends means? You know what it means? Covenant partners. Heirs. See, friend is another name for a covenant partner. If you're a friend of somebody in, in that culture, if you understood the talk, that is a covenant partner. And what Jesus was referring to is the time has come that you're not going to be servants like Israel was a servant. You know, see, some people say, well, we're servants of God. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's clarify what we're saying. We are servants of God in a sense that we serve God. Anybody here serve God? But not in the same sense that the word was used as a servant, like a child was a servant to his family considered as a servant until the adoption came. Now, you and I have been adopted into the family of God. We're no longer servants, but we are friends. We are blood covenant partners. Okay? Look, at this. I'll read it to you. This is John 15. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You are no longer a servant. The servants have had their bar mitzvah. We have had our jubilee. Jesus has become our jubilee. And now we are the friends of God. Abraham was considered a friend of God. Now you, through the promise, have become God's friend. His blood covenant partner, not as a servant like Israel, but as the legitimate sons and daughters of the Most High God through blood. Hallelujah. If that don't make you shout, something's wrong with your shouter. <laughs> Praise God. Now, let's go back to this third chapter. The, well, I've got to go back to it because I turned to John. But let's very quickly go over again what has transpired up, into this plate, up to this time. We see here that, first of all, in the covenant ceremony, number one, the covenant heads got together, didn't they? They made a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. God the Father was there, Abraham was there, Jesus was there, and the angels of God were there. Then we saw that, number two, they exchanged gifts. My life for yours and your life for mine. Abraham and God did. And then number three, we saw there was a cutting where blood, covenant means to cut where blood flows. We saw the blood covenant. The father used a substitute animal. Abraham, circumcision. Step number four, 
the next, well, whatever, the next step is wiped out because there's no blood drinking in this kind of relationship. God does not allow that. So they don't drink the blood. But they did cut the covenant. Okay? Abraham's circumcision is a memorial to him and the, and the nation of Israel. And also, the H out of God's name into his name is a memorial that he's in a blood covenant relationship. God's memorial is he swore by himself and he's taken on the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as part of his name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, did you notice that the next step is to pronounce the blessings and the curses? The priest is supposed to pronounce blessings and curses. And did you notice that in the covenant, this covenant, there were no curses pronounced? None at all. But there were blessings pronounced. Now, think about that. We sing the song, Abraham's blessings are mine, but let's get now into the true understanding of what, what we're singing when we sing that song. 13 and 14, look at these verses, 3, 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the curse of the what? Not the curse of Abraham, curse of the, of the what? When was the law added? 430 years later. There was no curse. Okay? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, what is written, cursed is anyone hanging on a tree, that the blessing of who? There were no curses in Abraham. There were only blessings in the covenant. God's initial intention, God's only intention in the blood covenant agreement was to bless, 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 bless. Genesis 22. Let's read it. No curse. No curses whatsoever. He didn't pronounce a curse. There was no priest pronouncing a curse at all. And here we see again what God said to Abraham to verify it. Verse 15, 22nd chapter. The curse is of the law. The blessing is of who? The curse is of the law. The law was added, but the law was fulfilled in Christ. Christ became the curse. He took away the curse of the law. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. He took the curse of the law away from the Jews, actually, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and the Jews. Okay, now listen. And the angel of the Lord called on Abraham out of heaven the second time. Verse 15, Genesis 22. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. No curse. There's no curse in God's covenant. There's no intention for God to have any calamity or, or thing come on you that's ungodly. There was no curse to the covenant of Abraham. Okay? In blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. Thy seed is the stars of heaven and is the sand which upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be cursed. Or uh, what? Blessed. See, not cursed. Blessed. Okay, look at Only blessing. Only blessing. But now because Israel disobeyed the covenant, God had to instill the law. He incorporated the law, brought it into the covenant, didn't change the covenant, didn't add to the covenant, didn't take away from the covenant. It was just to let these people know that if they broke the covenant, this is what awaited them. You could be blessed with faithful Abraham or you can be cursed if you disobey the law that I have given you. And really he's saying if you break the covenant. They were commanded to do it by faith, and Abraham did. But these people, they were a stiff-necked people. They wanted God to write it down. What do you want me to do, God? We should never be like that. Do this and don't do that. And do this and do Man, serve God from your heart by faith. And you will fulfill the law like Jesus did. Come to do His will, that's all. Don't do your own will. Okay? Now, let's look at the 27th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And we've got to fly. Let's get this on this table. 27th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Because here we're going to begin to see something about this curse and about the blessings of Abraham. It'll just ignite your fire again about these blessings of Abraham. 11th verse. 27th chapter, Deuteronomy. Curses of the law. Blessings are of Abraham. And Moses charged the people the same day saying, verse, tw verse 11, chapter 27, Deuteronomy. These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin and these shall stand upon Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, Naphtali and the Levites who are the priests they shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice cursed. Alright, now listen. You've got Mount Ebal on this side. 
You got Mount Gerizim on this side. You got the nation of Israel divided down the middle. You got a valley between them, which you'll see in other place. And you got half the nation of Israel on that side with the priests. And you got half the nation of Israel on this side with the priests. And on this side on Mount Gerizim, the priests began to pronounce the blessings of Abraham unto the people. And on that side, you have got the, the priests pronouncing the curses of the law for disobedience. The valley is in between them. Now think about this. In Luke's Gospel, the 16th chapter, we're told about a man who was a rich man and Lazarus who was a beggar. And we're told that the rich man died and, and, and went to hell and, and the beggar died and went to Abraham's bosom. And there was a gulf fixed between them. Now, in reality, Abraham's blessings were life, prosperity, and health. And the curses of the law were death, sickness, and poverty. And here we see that this rich man went into hell or Hades and the, the beggar went into Abraham's bosom, Abraham's blessings, Satan's curse, a gulf fixed between them, so that they that are on this mountain can't come to that side, and they that are on that side can't come because there's a gulf fixed between us, a valley. And they pronounced that those that would live by the covenant would be blessed with faithful Abraham in his bosom. And those that would not obey would be cursed under the curse of the law and they would get on this side and they can't switch sides. When I am walking in the, in the covenant, I am blessed with faithful Abraham and the curse can't come on me. And when I am disobeying it, I get myself over on that mountain and the curse could come on me. So what does he want us to do? Get off the mountain, go down to the valley and get all the people and get them on Abraham's side. That's what he wants you to do. Now, let's go to the 28th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, and I believe we can get this on here very quick. What are the blessings of Abraham? What are the blessings of Abraham? The first blessing of Abraham was found in Genesis, the 15th chapter, the 15th verse, where God said to Abraham that I will cause you to go to your fathers in a ripe old age, a full age. Remember that? Abraham lived to be 140 years old, married a woman named Keturah, had a few more kids, you know, by her. And uh, that's, that's, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Have another family. Can you imagine chasing kids at 140? <laughs> Ooh, glory. At 140 years old, he had enough strength to chase little kids around. I don't get time to expound on that. Let's go. So the Bible says in the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis, somewhere around verse 7 and 8, that Abraham lived a full life and he had to be strong to have all these kids again. And uh, he died in a full, ripe old age, just like God said. That was a blessing of Abraham. And God, to the Word, fulfilled what He spoke to Abraham. And if you never looked that out in the Bible, just look at Genesis 25, verses 1 through 8, and tie it up with Genesis 15, 15, and it tells you all about it. That he lived to be a full old age, a ripe old age, and he married Keturah, and he had more kids, and, and all that. Okay, that's the blessing of Abraham. God fulfilled the Word to a man that believed His covenant. Now listen, here it tells us the blessings of Abraham. And obeying is really obeying the covenant, not the law. You're obeying the covenant. It shall come to pass, if thou shalt, verse 1, hearken diligently. If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God to observe and to do all His commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord your God will set thee on high on Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. Hallelujah. He'll set you on high on the covenant mount of blessing. See, there's a difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Mount of curse and Mount of blessing. See? Hell and glory. Okay? Now here's what he said. If you will set your side, yourself, to obey the covenant in the word of God, he says, I command thee this day that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you. If you hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, God is the overtaker, not the undertaker. He is the life giver, not the killer. He says, I'll overtake you with blessing that you can't stand the blessing that I give you. You'll just get so excited, you just got to share it with everybody else. And you just have so much to give. And he says, in the next verse, And these blessings shall come on and overtake thee. And verse 3, Blessed shalt thou be in the city. If you're a city slicker, you'll be blessed in the city. Are you? Blessed shalt you be in the field if you're a farmer. Hallelujah, Jesus. Man, your crops will grow beneath your feet. I mean, they'll grow up faster than the weeds. 
Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your body. Blessed shall be the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, of increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall you be in a basket. And Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.